Here's a printout of a beautiful picture of a Lag Baomer parade, 1990 in Crown Heights. Here you see the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, addressing the crowd of thousands in front of 770 in the background, 770 Eastern Parkway. This is a Lag Baomer parade. Lag Baomer is coming up. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15, time for our weekly Lunch and Learn. Welcome back. Today is Lunch and Learn number 130, although each lesson is independent from the other. Coming up, we have a Jewish holiday, a day of celebration called Lag Baomer, and that is today's topic. Hi, Amy. Hi, Gary. Hi, everybody joining on. We're getting ready to begin our weekly Torah session. We'll start with a blessing over a cup of water. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOilam She'akol Ni'yoh B'dvoroi I still missed the lunch part, but we have the learn part. We'll study together today from when we begin for 60 minutes exploring another element of the holiday of Lag Omer. Last week we discussed the life of Rabbi Akiva, the lessons and the theme of the holiday uniting together. And today we will continue on with another element of this holiday. We'll discuss another great sage, Hi Vicky, uh, Rabbi Shimon, known as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. And there is a beautiful song that is commonly sung for this holiday. A, uh, I guess like a hymn, like a beautiful poetic song written about Rabbi Shimon, it goes like this, Bar Yochai nimshachta shrecha shemen sason Praising the life of Rabbi Shimon. <clears throat> so hopefully we will delve into some of those expressions that that po poem describes about Rabbi Shimon. And most importantly, we will try to extract relative relevant lessons that we can learn and apply to our lives living in the year 2021. Hi Bob and hi everybody joining. We have a source sheet. If you're not on my email list, you can download or print out from this post. There's a link to a source sheet that we prepared especially for today's lesson. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll talk about some general idea what Rabbi Shimon stood for. We'll delve into a, we'll zoom into a specific story. We'll talk about his passing and we'll talk about some customs, how this day is celebrated. Here we go. Um, lunch and learn number 130. And let's give a bit of a historical background. Rabbi Shimon, we'll just say Rabbi Shimon, or he's known also as Rashbi. Rashbi has four Hebrew letters, Rash as for Rabbon. Rabbi Shin for Shimon Ben Bar, which means the son of in Aramaic, and Yud Yochai or Yochai, who was the father of Rabbi Shimon. So we'll just call him Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon lives and was born about the year 80 of the first century. <clears throat> so he lived in the first century and he was born and he lived in the times of the Roman war against the Jews. He was, he was living in the country of Israel, in the land of Israel, and the Romans oppressed the Jewish people. Uh, I guess he was born shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple, and the Romans really buckled down on Jewish life, 
And the Romans realized that the strength of the Jewish people, the continuity of the Jewish people is dependent on Torah, on Torah study, on Torah teachings. And therefore, they made a decree, as we see in source number one, documented in the Talmud. Today's lesson, as usual, has sources from Torah, from Talmud, from Midrash. Let's look at the authentic sources and see for ourselves. Let's study together. Hi, Rais. Hi, Michael. Hi, Nancy. Here we go. Source number one on our source sheet that Romans decreed anyone who ordains will be killed and the city in which they ordain will be destroyed. What ordain means is to ordain to become an official rabbi, to become an official judge, to have the capacity to, hi Maureen, to um, a certain authority. In Hebrew we call it now today semicha. Semicha means um, if you want to become a rabbi, then you need to get tested by a senior rabbi, or usually a senior beth uh, din, like a court of rabbis, let's say. But uh, semicha means like you are ordained, and it's like a link going back to Moses. Moses uh, ordained Joshua, his, his uh, successor and student, and he ordained the following generation, gen- from generation to generation, from teacher to student. They passed on this this like sort of um, the right to the, the authority to rule on on, a, you know, on certain legal issues. Hi, Irene. So the Romans understanding and trying to crush the Jewish uh, religion, trying to crush the Jewish spirit, they turned to the spiritual part of Jewish life. Hi, Jack. And as we see in Source 1, see it one more time, they decreed anyone who ordains, whichever teacher will ordain, will officially give um, uh, I guess ordination to uh, to the student will be killed, and the city in which they ordain will be destroyed. Not just they will suffer and the, the, the consequence, but all of the inhabitants of the city. But the rabbis would never give up. They felt a responsibility for the um, for uh, for Torah and a certain rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava went and sat between two large mountains and there he ordained five students. When the Roman soldiers discovered them, they inserted 300 iron spears into his body. So literally Rabbi Yehuda literally gave his life, he was an older rabbi, he was one of the elders, and he literally uh, gave up his life, risked his life, but not wanting, in order to uh, ordain students. And not wanting to put the lives of the people of his city at risk. So he went in an open place between two cities and he sat between two mountains hoping that no one would discover him. But And right there he ordained five students and our Rabbi Shimon that we're talking about today was one of those five students. And unfortunately word got out, somebody let the Roman soldiers on into the secret and they came and they literally... Um, tortured him and uh, executed him in a very terrible way. But Rabbi Yehuda gave up his life for the continuity to preserve Torah and Rabbi Shimon was that link, another link in the chain of teaching Torah. This is a little bit of a background, the time, the era, literally a a holocaust happening um, for the Jewish people in Israel. And Rabbi Shimon was uh, very devoted, was very committed to Torah study and literally that was his life. And throughout the Talmud and Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon is quoted and many of his quotes, many of his teachings surround around the importance of Torah study even in such oppression, even during such difficult circumstances. As we see one expression in source number two, if a person plows, says Rabbi Shimon, 
If a person plows in the plowing season and sows in the sowing season and harvests in the harvest season and then threshes in the threshing season and winnows in the winding season, what will become of Torah? Rabbi Shimon was inspiring the people that it's not enough just to work the field, even in such difficult times, one must dedicate time to studying Torah. And Rabbi Shimon himself personified Torah study uh, to the umph degree, as the Talmud says, Rabbi Shimon, whose Torah, was, whose Torah is his profession. Torah was not just something that he did when he had time, wasn't just his hobby. Torah was his life, Torah was his vocation, it was his profession. The Hebrew term is Torasai. His Torah is his umnos, his, his, uh, his go-to, his, his full life. Every, life was all about the study of Torah. And Rabbi Shimon studied first in the city of Yavne by the great Rabbi Gabriel, by the great Rabbi Yeshua. But his primary teacher was Rabbi Akiva, who we discussed last week. Rabbi Akiva, who 24,000 students passed, but Rabbi Shimon was one of the five remaining students who Rabbi Akiva taught and... Rabbi Shimon's primary teacher was considered Rabbi Akiva. <clears throat> Let's move on to source number three. Another expression of Rabbi Shimon's uh, telling us the importance of Torah study. Source three, Rabbi Shimon said, Had I been standing at Mount Sinai, I would have asked God to create man with two mouths, one to learn Torah and the other to take care of all his other needs. So devoted was he to Torah that he would rather study Torah literally every moment and instead of having to insert food into his mouth and use his mouth for something else other than Torah study, he would have said, he said, if I would have been at Mount Sinai when we got to Torah, I would have told God, listen, I want to study Torah, give me another mouth, one to eat and for other things and one to use for Torah study. Just interesting that uh, part of Torah study is actually using our mouths. Sometimes we might read with our eyes, but a very integral part of Torah study is to really immerse ourselves into the Torah study. Uh, typical Torah study done, done in a yeshiva is, uh, you know, a chavrusa, a study with a study partner, and each one takes takes a turn actually reading, not just you know looking with your eyes, but actually talking it out, actually debating it. Uh, when we say it over, when we can repeat it, we can, we understand it better. We you know with our eyes, it sort of just goes quick. But when we talk about it, uh, we have a better understanding. We're forced to have a better understanding in order to be able to explain it to somebody else. But even if we're by ourselves, when we study Torah with our mouth, we remember it better. We are more involved. Our body is actively involved, not just our brains, with the study of Torah. That's why he would have wanted to have a second mouth. But later, Rabbi Shimon said, actually, you know, it's difficult enough to refrain from speaking negatively about people with one mouth. If we would have had two mouths, it would have been even harder. So better, just one mouth. But we see that Rabbi Shimon um, expressed himself this way, showing us how our mouth should be used for Torah study. Our mouth um, and Torah study is, is something very, very important for the continuity to preserve Torah. We need to have set times to study Torah. Like we're doing right here, we are studying Torah. Let's take a look at source number four. Rabbi Shimon eventually established his own yeshiva in a city called Tekoa. Actually, I was there 11 years ago. Uh, the town still exists. The city of Tekoa is where Rabbi Shimon established a yeshiva which, many, which attracted many students. And one time, one student, source number four, a disciple of Rabbi Shimon, went abroad. He left Israel and returned wealthy. And 
you can imagine one student comes back wealthy and all the rest of the students are not really involved in uh, material pursuits. They're not involved with making money. And this student comes back, oh, he's wealthy and he's, he seems to be living it up. And they, they start thinking to themselves, maybe we should follow suits. So Rabbi Shimon continues the Midrash, brought his students to a valley, prayed to God, and the valley filled up with gold coins. So I just want to stop here before we continue the story. Rabbi Shimon, being so devoted to and dedicated to Torah study, uh, when one connects the Torah in such a way, the Torah um, becomes the rule of nature, or the Torah becomes the ruler of nature. Who created nature? God created nature, but Torah came before the world. The world was created that we should be able to come to this world, study Torah, do the mitzvahs, and elevate this world. The Torah, the Midrash says, is the blueprints of the world. So one who really connects the Torah can sort of control the world and can sort of, uh, I don't want to say, maybe manipulate or, or change, make change to nature because Torah is really higher than nature. Torah is above nature. Torah is supranatural. So Rabbi Shimon, being so connected to Torah and so devoted to Torah, he was able to perform miracles. And, and in many stories in the Talmud of Rabbi Shimon, uh, saving situations and, and doing things that were miraculous because of his deep connection to Torah. So here we see an example of that, that he comes to the valley and he brings the students there and he says, Valley, valley, he says in Aramaic, Bika, bika, hitmali dinarim, fill up with dinars, which is gold coins. And he says to his students after the valley was bare and all of a sudden the valley fills up sprouts gold dinars, gold coins. And he tells the students, he said to them, whoever wants to take may take. But know that whoever takes is taking from his portion in the world to come. Yes, there are gold coins over here. But is that what's important in life? Is life about acquiring material wealth and living it up? Yes, it's good to be comfortable. But those things are called chaye shah. Those things are valuable for a time. But we don't take the money with you to the grave. Torah study. That is chaye olam. That is eternal life. That is something we take with us. That is something which is truly valuable, eternally valuable. So he was telling his students, you can take the gold coins, but one who takes the gold coins is taking from his portion in the world to come again, inspiring the students to Torah study and as another example we see in source number five, during a severe drought, a delegation came and requested of Rabbi Shimon to pray for rain. Happens in Israel especially that there is a drought. There is not much rain. And they came, now typically when we, where we need something, we have a request, what do we do? We pray. We say psalms, we gather in synagogue, especially in Israel. There was a whole series, a system of prayers Different, uh, you know, they would go out to the, to the street, to the open area, and everyone would gather, and they would do the whole, you know, system and uh, process, ceremony for the prayers. But Rabbi Shimon was different. Rabbi Shimon was so connected to Torah. What did Rabbi Shimon do? He started to lecture on the verse. He started to expound and teach Torah on the verse, Hinei matov umanayim shevet achim gam yacha. That's a verse of, of Tehillim of Psalms, chapter 133. How beautiful it is, how goodly it is 
that when brothers sit together. It's a beautiful song. Rabbi Shimon expounded on this verse and continuing in source number 5, immediately it began raining. Rabbi Shimon was not through prayer the way he chained his, his uh, go-to was Torah. When he expounded on Torah, that's how he was able to do miracles and, and change, change uh, what would be naturally. That's the power of Torah. Now what does this got to do with us? We're not Rabbi Shimon and we're not studying Torah on the level of Rabbi Shimon and, and performing miracles. But what, 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 each section will try to take a lesson here. And the, the lesson of section one is that maybe our profession is not Torah study. We're busy with other things and rightfully so. Rabbi Shimon was unique. It says some tried to follow Rabbi Shimon's ways but they were not successful. The other rabbi said, you know, you got to have set times to studying Torah, and you also got to work, you got to uh, support your family and not rely on miracles. But what we see is the power of Torah, and we see the dedication. Rabbi Shimon didn't just study Torah. When he studied Torah, he was very focused on Torah. When he studied Torah, all there was was Torah, and everything else fell to the side. Now there was Torah, and that we can learn from, that in the set times that we do have, and we should set times for studying Torah and during that time those things don't get doesn't get pushed off just like we don't push off dinner time and we don't push off other doctor's appointments we don't push off Torah study is something that should happen on a daily basis on a weekly basis as often as we can we should have set times for studying Torah and those things should be fixed they should be fixed times because Torah study is nutritional is nutrition for our souls and at that time, it should be our profession. At those, at that hour, at that 10 minutes a day or, you know, whatever it is that we're setting aside for Torah study, that time, it's our profession. It's our vocation. There is nothing else. This is our, our full time. This is our full focus. As we see in source number six, Rabbi Shimon's profession, talent, and passion was Torah study mindful Torah study, that when we're studying Torah, we should be mindful of what we're studying and really immersed in the Torah study. We all work on ignoring the external and internal noises that help us be unfocused, especially today where there's so many distractions. We just got to close our phone, put it aside, close the whatever is making noise, and external noise, internal noise, and focus in. We too can change the nature of things by making the time we set aside to learn Torah sacred, untouchable, and mindful. And we can be like Rabbi Shimon, that we can change things. And we study Torah, the study of Torah is the key. I shared this story before, but it's one of my favorites, that one, there was this one man that came to town, he was a poor man, and he asked the other poor men, where can I get a good meal, who can host me? And they tell him, go here, go there, but there's this one beautiful home in the center of town, but don't go there. He'll invite you inside, the wealthy man, but he won't let you eat. Every time you're about to take a bite, he asks you a question and you have to respond, and then he, he eats, and then by the time you answer the question, he has another question. The whole meal, he's eating away, like we say, and either she's fressing, and uh, you don't get to eat anything, even though you see all the delicious food. So it's not worth it to go through this painful experience. The guy says, let me try it out, and he shows up at the guy's house, and the guy invites him in, he sits him at the table, and as he sticks the food, the table is laden with delicious delicacies. He's about to take a bite, and the man says, uh, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Chelm. And he says, in Chelm, who, uh, I have a friend in Chelm, how is my friend Chaim doing? And he says, uh, Chaim, Chaim died. 
Chayim, my friend died. Oy, oy, oy. And the guy starts, the rich man uh, starts crying and moaning. And meanwhile, this poor man is eating and eating and eating. And the guy realizes, oy, vey. This miser realizes this, this poor man is eating. He says, oh, what, about my, my, what about my cousin Leah? Leah? Leah died. And he eats and eats and this guy is crying. And so goes the whole meal. After the meal, the miser is hungry and this guy is full. And he says, tell me, what's going on in Chelm? Everybody is dying. Is there a pandemic? Is there a, what's going on? And the man says, listen, Chaim is fine and Leah is fine. Everybody's fine. But when I eat, everybody is gestorben. Everybody died. Everybody is dead. When I'm eating, there's nothing else in the world. There's no chalm. There's no people. When I'm eating, I'm eating. And similarly, we can say when we, start, when we study Torah, we cleanse our minds. We remove the distractions. We focus on study. And we can be like Rabbi Shimon. In, those, in this time that we're studying Torah, we're focused. There's no disturbances. Our Torah study is our profession. That's lesson number one from Rabbi Shimon. Let's move on to section number two. If you're with me, if you can just uh, give me a thumbs up, uh, just give me some feedback. And once again, if you have any questions, feel free to comment along the way. Let's move on to section. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Um, let's move on to section number two. Gracious. Rabbi Shimon was studious in section number one. And number two, Rabbi Shimon was gracious. Here's a, f- a very famous story about Rabbi Shimon and his son Elazar. During the Roman oppression, source number seven. So Rabbi Shimon was sitting around with some of his colleagues, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi. It's just amazing how we can be living 1800 years later, 1900 years later, and we are discussing, we are examining the lives of these great sages. These sages are called Tanaim. Tanaim are the sages of the Mishnah, because the Mishnah, which was redacted by one of the students of Rabbi Shimon, his name was Rabbi Yehuda, we, looked, we talked about him, uh, Judah, the, Judah the Prince, uh, quoted Rabbi Shimon as one of the, the Tanaim. The sages of the Talmud, which lived a few hundred years later, they're called the Amoraim. They lived in Babylonia, many of them, also some in Israel. But uh, the first and the second, the first century, second century, they're called the Tanaim. And living so many years later, but we can... Look into the stories that the Talmud documents. And obviously these stories were documented for us to learn from them. Hi Jody. Hi uh, Roy. We're just on time for the second section. We're learning about Rabbi Shimon. We're on the second section here. Rabbi Shimon uh, is sitting around with Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Yehuda. And they're talking about the Roman conquerors. The Roman occupiers who's, who, are, who are ruling the land of Israel. And Rabbi Yehuda speaks good about them. Rabbi Yossi is quiet. And Rabbi Shimon, source number seven. And it's fascinating that this story of Rabbi Shimon is recorded in Tractate Shabbos, page 33. And the holiday of Rabbi Shimon, as we'll see, the day of his passing, is Lag Ba'omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. And it's interesting that one of the most famous stories on page 33. Nothing happens by chance. So Rabbi Shimon responds, no, no, no. Rabbi Shimon says... How can we speak kind about the Romans who are oppressing us and not allowing us to study Torah openly? Rabbi Shimon responded and said, everything that they established, they established only for their own purposes. You think the Romans are out for us? You think they're out to benefit us? They did it for themselves. They established marketplaces to place prostitutes in them, bathhouses to pamper themselves, and bridges to collect taxes from all who pass over them. Yes, the Roman Romans were avid builders and they can still see the remnants of their buildings 
in Israel today, but they're doing it for their own purposes. So Rabbi Shimon said this, word got around, and the, Romans, the Roman authorities heard of what Rabbi Shimon said, and a towering figure like Rabbi Shimon speaking negatively about them did not find favor in their eyes, and they ruled and said, Shimon, who denounced the government, shall be killed, shall be executed. Shimon had no choice but to flee. He fled with his son Elazar. First they, held, they, they uh, hid in a synagogue, and his wife provided them with, secretly with food, but then they saw that the search was intensifying, and source 11, they went and they hid in a cave. In any nursery or preschool, uh, children are around this time of the year, about before Lag Bomer, they're busy making arts and crafts of a cave. Why a cave? Because Rabbi Shimon, who as we'll see, passed away on Lag Bomer, Rabbi Shimon hid in a cave with his son Rabbi Elazar. And here we have some very important, uh, important lesson coming up. I hope the plumbing emergency was... Uh, settled. <clears throat> so they're hiding in a cave. Now, where is this cave? This cave is in a place called Pekian. Actually, uh, they ha- somehow identified this cave. There are many, plenty of caves in, uh, across Israel, but they identified this cave because the Talmud does make mention of the name of this of the area called Pekian. And let's continue on in source number eight. A miracle occurred, and a carob tree was created for them as well as a spring of water. Again, we know that Rabbi Shimon lived a very miraculous kind of life, being so devoted to Torah study, and Torah study literally being his life, his bread and butter, if that's the right expression, his, his, uh, his, his lifeline. And how did they sustain themselves in the cave? Nobody knew where they were. No one was able to bring them anything. How do they sustain themselves? The miracle. God created a carrot tree. And it's interesting because it's, it's like a double miracle because the carrot tree usually takes many years to grow and to bear fruit. And here, in a, in a, in a short time, God created that this tree should, should sprout and grow carobs. Carobs are apparently are, uh, very nutritious. I don't think they're so tasty. But many actually have a custom on Lag Bomer to eat carobs. In Yiddish, we say boxer. I don't know how you say it in Russian. It's like a, a banana-shaped kind of um, pod, uh, whatever it's called, with like uh, sweet uh, peas inside. Um, I think it's like an alternative to chocolate or cocoa. You can make lots of things out of it, but it's very nutritious. So they ate, they ate the fruits of the carob tree and they drank water from the spring that came up right outside their cave. How long were they in the cave for? Says the Talmud. We'll see in a moment. They were so they would remove their clothes and sit covered in sand up to their necks. They didn't have time to pack a suitcase and uh, with all their clothes. And those days, in general, people didn't have that many suits. They just wore a robe and they washed it once in a while. Uh, <clears throat> things uh, standards were different then. But knowing that they're going to be here for a while, they didn't want their clothes to be worn out, and they needed to preserve their clothes for prayer time because when we pray, we need to be wearing clothes and nice clothes. So they removed their clothes and they would sit in the sand. They dug a hole and they would literally cover their bodies up to their neck in sand and sit like that and study Torah together. When it was time to pray, they would put on their clothes. They would study Torah all day in this, in that manner. How long were they in the cave for? They sat in the cave for 12 years. 
Elijah the prophet came after 12 years and stood at the entrance of the cave and said, Who will inform Bar Yochai, the son of Yochai, Rabbi Shimon, that the emperor died and his decree has been abrogated? They emerged from the cave. That's in short, there's a lengthy story in the Talmud. In short, we see here Rabbi Shimon had to flee because he stood for no uh, nonsense. He didn't like the Romans. He wasn't happy with them. He said it and he had to flee as a result. 12 years, talk about quarantining. They quarantined with his son for 12 years with no social media, no uh, devices. What did he do for 12 years? Actually, it was 13 years because after they emerged from the cave, they had to go back in for another year. So a total of 13 years in the cave. At least they had each other. What did they do there? They studied Torah, as we'll see a little later. But they studied Torah. They used their time wisely. They knew that this is... Um, you know, part of the mission, part of their mission, part of the destiny. It's not just because he said something, this is part of God's plan. And they made the best of those 12, 13 years until Elijah came and instructed them, emperor died. The emperor who made the decree that you should be executed, he died. And the rule was that if an emperor dies, then all of his decrees are abolished, all of his decrees are rescinded, and every shimon was safe to emerge. And here we have a fascinating lesson. The Talmud goes on to tell us, what did Rabbi Shimon do? You would think after 13 years in the cave, he would go around, uh, maybe uh, establish a museum for himself. He would, all the things that his clothes and who knows what, uh, he would go around speaking. He would uh, expect people to honor him, the great sage. Go on a vacation somewhere. What did he do? Says the Talmud, source number nine, Rabbi Shimon said, is there something that needs repair? The first thing he did, I've been waiting myself 13 years. What can I do to help? Is there something that you need my expertise that I can come and help? And he, this was in the city of Tiberia. Tiberia is the city of Tiberias in the north of Israel. It's the city uh, that rests on the Kinneret, on the Sea of the Galil, the, the, the sea that uh, Israel drinks its water from. Dividing Israel from Jordan in the north of Israel, the northeast of Israel. Beautiful sea. And the city of Tiveria was a place where there were many cemeteries. We mentioned last week Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva and his wife are buried there. For sure, Rabbi, his wife Rachel, uh, the famous Rabbi Meir we spoke about is buried in Tiveria. Maimonides is buried in Tiveria, Tiberias. There are many, many graves over there. It was a rocky place. So they designated it for graves. So there was a certain field over there that, let's see inside what they told them, continuing in source number 9, they said to Rabbi Shimon, there is a place where there is uncertainty. And the priests, meaning the Kohens, the Kohanim are troubled by being forced to circumvent it as it is prohibited for them to become ritually impure from contact with a corpse. Thank you, Nancy. If you have any, any questions, feel free to comment and we'll address it at the end. So what this is referring to is called... Um, a suffix tuma, a suffix, a doubt, an uncertainty in regards to impurity. So the laws of purity and impurity, we mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about mikvah, uh, if somebody comes in contact with something dead, a dead body, whether uh, you know, at a funeral, being in the same room, being in a funeral home, kind of a, you know, what's it called, a room, uh, or being close contact with a grave or touching a grave, going to a cemetery and so on, or, or uh, walking over a grave, can bring a per brings a person into a state of impurity. And how is a person 
get released from this impurity by immersing in a mikvah, other, other, depending how he became impure, there are different other ways, but one of them is mikvah. Now, a Kohen has to really be pure because he cannot enter the temple, which Kohanes did the service in the temple, if he is impure. And also, even if this is after, and this was already after the destruction of the temple, because at this time the temple was already destroyed, but the Kohanes eat Turuma. Turuma is uh, a tithe, kind of tithing, which, uh, which was given to the Kohanes, the priests, and they would eat it, and they needed to eat it in purity. They couldn't eat it uh, being impure, being ritually impure. So there was this specific field where a grave was lost in the field. There was a grave there, but they weren't sure where it is. So therefore, they had to avoid the entire field because maybe they'll be walking over the grave. The grave was unmarked. The grave's stone, the, the gravestone, the tombstone was, was lost or was never put in, and the exact place of the grave was, was, uh, was in doubt. So in order to pass over, it was a large area. They knew there was a grave there somewhere. And in order to pass through, they had to really make a whole detour. And it was uncomfortable for the Kohanes that were living in the city. So they came to Rabbi Shimon and they said, maybe you can help us out. Maybe you could identify and locate the place, the exact place, location of the grave. And Rabbi Shimon, uh, using a special, you know, uh, special ways, was able to identify where the ground was soft and doing a special kind of test of planting things. That obviously, with divine uh, intervention, the great person that he was, was able to identify and mark off the, the exact place of the grave. And the coins had no need to um, walk all around from then on. Uh, this is just mind-boggling because Rabbi Shimon just spent 13 years in a cave. We'll see in a moment he was not in the greatest state of health. You can imagine sitting in sand for 13 years and just taking, coming out of the sand uh, to pray. And most of the time he wasn't praying, he was studying Torah. He was not in a good condition. And yet, says, let's take a look at source number 10, a person who was inconvenienced by living in a cave for 13 years, would presumably feel that he has a monopoly on pain and discomfort and scoff at the younger generation who call every triviality a trauma. Big deal! You have to walk around. You know what I just went through? I was just hiding in a cave for 13 years, sitting in sand. That's real pain. That's real discomfort. You're coming to me that I should help you. Take a walk. It's good for you. Walk a little bit. And yet... Here we find, but here we find that Rishimon spending his first moments of freedom helping some Kohanim get rid of a relatively small inconvenience. It reminds me of the Hayom Yom, a passage of Hayom Yom. Hayom Yom is a book that the Rebbe, our Rebbe, uh, collected sayings of of his of the previous Rebbe's, mainly his father-in-law, uh, and he organized it like a little pocketbook per day. Every day, like another quote. The book is called Hayom Yom. A day is a day. And one quote there we had recently is that the Baal Shem Tov, the first founder of Hasidism, said that a soul can come down to this world and live 70, 80 years just to do a favor for another. So one of the songs that we sing at the Hebrew school, uh, we sing it in camp. Telava, uh, how does it go? For 70, 80 years, Zainashama wears and tears. Just to do a favor for another. Love him with all your heart. The heavens spread apart. For every Jew is really our brother. For 70, 80 years. Rabbi Shimon was 13 years in the cave. But yet we found important to help somebody. To ease somebody's pain. 
to make them more comfortable. The Talmud tells us the story because we need to learn from Rabbi Shimon. We can learn from Rabbi Shimon and be the same. And when we see somebody, even if it seems a tr- triviality, something small, something trivial in our eyes, but for them, if we can ease their pain, if we can lift their discomfort, we can you know, bring some joy to, their, to, to them, make things easier for somebody else, that is important. That is worthwhile. That is something Rabbi Shimon found important, that that should be one of the first things that he did when he emerged from 13 years quarantining in the cave. Now, think about this quarantine, meaning some, you know, we can, we can uh, relate to this a little bit, every, everything we've been through the past, the past uh, year plus with this pandemic. And there's, there's two ways to look at it. We can say, you know, uh, I'm in quarantine or I have to be more careful. I have to stay at home. I can't be at parties. I have, to, I have more time for myself. I'm just waiting for this time to pass. Or we can really say, listen, this didn't happen by itself. Obviously, it's part of God's plan. And um, I need to make the best of this. I need to find how to grow. I need to find how to grow from this. And Rabbi Shimon, he could have said, you know, be filled with anger to the Romans and what he had to end up there for so many years, year after year, up to 13 years in the cave. But that's not the way he looked at it. And we see this in, 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 uh, in a little story that happened. I didn't bring here the, 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 the actual passage, but after he came out of the cave, one of the things that he did do for himself is go to the bathhouse because imagine you know, being a, uh, uh, sitting in sand up to your neck, up to his neck for 13 years, didn't leave his skin in the best condition. It was full of pores and, and cuts and, and the skin was really not doing too well. And his father-in-law, his father-in-law was Pinchas ben Yair. He's buried in Tzfat, was by his grave. Many, uh, I believe many go to his grave. Uh, it's like a, specifically for a shidduch, you know, a blessing for a good marriage. But to find your soulmate, if I'm not mistaken, it's him. And Pinchas comes to greet him. Pinchas was Rabbi Shimon's father-in-law. Some say it was his son-in-law, but the Zohar says it was his father-in-law and he was helping him. He was uh, massaging him with oils and creams and really trying to, excuse me, um, you know, you know, uh, be like a doctor and try to heal his skin condition. And while Pinchas sees his son-in-law, he came to greet him after 13 years, not knowing where he is. And he starts to cry and, and his tears land on the cuts and every Shimon is screaming, the Talmud says. He was soyak, he was crying and screaming out of pain because his tears were salty and the salty tears were landing on his open wounds. It was very painful. And, and, and this is, you know, Pinchas, the father-in-law, is, is uh, witnessing this and he, and he says, He says, Woe is to me that I see you like this. Like, like this is terrible, you know, like how terrible this is and woe to me that I'm, that I'm seeing this. And Rabbi Shimon says, don't say oily, don't say woe to me. Say, he says, Ashrecha, how lucky you are that you see me like this. What's going on here? Rabbi Shimon is telling him, I was 13 years in the cave, yes, and this, the skin, my skin is, is, is it's painful, I'm not in the best health condition. But I'm not, a, I'm not like we say in Yiddish, a nebach. I'm not a, I'm not a, like, oive, this is so terrible. I was in the cave, and, and Rabbi Shimon tells him, you know what? 13 years ago, when we would study together, I would ask you a question, and you would answer me 12 answers for a good question that I asked. But now, if you ask me a question, I'll answer you 24 answers. 
And you know why? Because I was 13 years in the cave. Those years in the cave, Rabbi Shimon maximized. He took the time and he said, listen, if I'm here, I'm going to make use of my time. And he diligently studied Torah. And he, uh, he attained this level that he was able to respond to his father-in-law double than, than his father-in-law was able to answer him before. He grew from this experience. He says, it's not, don't tell me, woe is to me. He says, Ashrecha, how lucky you are. That's how we look at a challenge. That's how we look at quarantine. That we can make the best and find ways to use this experience. Maybe Hashem is telling us to look into ourselves, to study more Torah, to enhance our, our, um, our relationships with our children, with our spouse, with our parents, with our neighbors, the people that we have to spend more time with. But specifically, what was the topics that Rabbi Shimon was studying in the cave? He was studying what's called the Kabbalah. He was studying what later was, was uh, documented and transcribed in the book of the Zohar. The Zohar, um, we have a Zohar here. Can't find it right now. Somewhere here we have the book of the Zohar. The Zohar literally means the book of radiance. The book of... Uh, the Book of Radiance, the Book of Shine, the Zohar, the Rays. The Zohar is the fundamental book, the foundation book of the teachings of Kabbalah. What is that? The Zohar basically is a commentary on the, on the Torah. But within it, it has stories, it has you know, uh, teachings, uh, and it's the inner teachings, it's the, the mystical ideas, the mystical teachings of the Torah. For those years, that's what Rabbi Shimon was dedicated to studying, to expounding, to delving into. This element, this section of Torah, which generally, uh, especially at that time, was not taught to the masses. Rabbi Shimon was the first to disseminate these teachings. He formed a Chavraya Kadisha, a holy group. And they were his disciples and were able to study these great things. Let's take a look. Let's turn the page to our next section, section number three. We're with source number 11. <clears throat> so we, we said Rabbi Shimon was born around the year 80 of the Common Era. He lived approximately 80 years. And on Lagba Omer, this coming Thursday night and Friday, we're celebrating Lagba Omer. <clears throat> Lagba Omer is the day that he passed away approximately in the year 160 of the Common Era. Rabbi Shimon is living then in the city of Meiron, in the north of Israel, and his whole life, Rabbi Shimon is teaching the teachings of Torah, teaching the Pnimios Torah, the inner dimensions of Torah, the soul of Torah, not just the laws of Torah, which he also he com he compo compiled, uh, he wrote the Midrash, the Sifri, I believe. But what's called Nistar, the hidden parts of Torah. And specifically on the day of his passing on Lag Ba'omer was a day of great re revelation. As we see quoted in the actual Zohar. Source number 11. On the day that Rabbi Shimon, here we have a quote from the Zohar. You ever learned Zohar? Let's learn Zohar right now. Zohar is written in Aramaic. It's not so easy to understand. Um... Source number 11, on the day that Rabbi Shimon was preparing to leave this world, he said, this is an auspicious time. 
It's a sad day when someone passes away, especially a great teacher, but he says it's an auspicious time. I am now going to reveal holy secrets that I have never yet disclosed. Until today, these were concealed because I was afraid to reveal them. But now I see that God and all the holy souls are present and all, and all have consented to the revelation of these secrets. I see that they are all here to exult in my joy. Rabbi Shimon describes his passing as a joy. In Aramaic it's called a hilula, a celebration. Just like uh, in, in Aramaic that word is used for a wedding because a wedding is a unification or a reunification of two halves of one soul. The male and the female components. And so too, uh, when someone passes, the soul returns to its maker. There is a wedding, there is a union or a reunion. The soul came down here and now is returning. It is a day of celebration. Not everybody feels that connection and creates that deep connection the way where Rabbi Shimon did. Rabbi Shimon was down here in this world, openly connected to Hashem, and especially on the day of his passing, is when this connection reached the ultimate, reached the, the, its, uh, the pinnacle. That was on Lagba Omer. You know, part of the song that uh, we sang before, Bar Yochai, it's actually a, like a poem written by a great Kabbalist, probably about five, six hundred year, five hundred years ago. His name was Shimon. Uh, Bar, Bar Ben Lavi. Lavi was, I guess, his father, his family name. And Shimon, um, he wrote this poem. It's a very famous song now and has 10 stanzas. And one of the things he writes there is that he, he, he describes in the poem that he hid in the cave, but he says that by being in the cave, Where did you acquire your splendor? From the cave. By being in the cave, it wasn't just, Oh, I have to be here, so I'm stuck here in the cave. Where did he acquire the wealth of knowledge of the secrets of the Torah, the inner dimensions of Torah, right over there in the cave, when he was in quarantine? He looked deeper and deeper into Torah. Source number 12, another quote from the Zohar. The holiness of Rabbi Shimon was so intense, describing there the day of his passing his students. The Zohar itself was, is, was, uh, was uh, written by his students. The Chavraya Kadisha, the holy group, uh, the holy circle. Um, one of them was the Sofer. He was the scribe. I think it was Rabbi Abba. And Rabbi Abba, there was Rabbi... Uh, Rabbi Yossi, his son Elazar was part of this group. It was about maybe nine or ten, I believe, uh, sages that were part of this holy group. Not everybody was uh, able to grasp the, the teachings that uh, was on the spiritual level to be able to understand and be part of this. But Rabbi Abba writes, he's describing the death, the passing of Rabbi Shimon. He says, it was so intense, the holiness, and throughout the day a fire surrounded the house. And Rabbi Abba recalled, when the fire subsided, I saw that the great luminary Rabbi Shimon had passed away. A voice rang out from heaven, come and gather for the celebration of Rabbi Shimon for his burial. And it was a celebration because the soul of Rabbi Shimon completed his, his holy mission in this world and was returning, ascending to heaven. It was a day of celebration. This is a person who lived a spiritual life, a life dedicated to Torah, a life dedicated to the inner dimensions of Torah, which talks about the souls and the purpose of life. And this, Rabbi Shimon actually himself requested that this should be a day of celebration, a hilula, hilula de Rabbi Shimon as it's called, 
the celebration of Rabbi Shimon. Actually, let's go back to our picture that we began with, the picture of our Rebbe in 1990 at a, a Lag Baomer parade. You see here on the top, what is Lag Baomer in Hebrew? Yom Hilula Derashbi, the day of the celebration, the, the wedding sort of, the great celebration of Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. Actually, this parade took place in 1990, exactly two days before I was born. Okay, that, uh, I want to invite all of you to a special celebration. Okay, we'll talk about it soon uh, for my birthday. But that's that picture. <clears throat> so let's get back here. Uh, we're, we're in our third section, the Rabbi Shimon and the teachings of Kabbalah. Kabbalah. I'm sure we all heard of Kabbalah. What's Kabbalah? So there's lots to talk about Kabbalah. It focuses in on the inner... It focuses. It talks about God. It talks about uh, creation. It talks about the purpose of creation. It talks about souls. It talks about the purpose of souls. So it doesn't talk so much about Jewish law. It doesn't talk about kosher, not kosher, uh, how long you have to salt the meat. So, so there are two parts of Torah. There was what's called nigla, the revealed part of Torah. That's Jewish law. To, you know, the five books or the, the Tanakh, the 24 books of the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, Code of Jewish Law, Maimonides. That's, that's Jewish law. Let's say one tract it is what is permitted on Shabbos, what's, what's forbidden on Shabbos. What constitutes a work that we shouldn't do on Shabbos. So all the details. And what, con- what makes something kosher? How do we slaughter? How long do we have to salt the meat for? How to... How long do we have to wait between milk and meat? And all the details that go into this. Then there's law between Torah law, between man and his friend. Uh, the laws of courts. That's Torah. It's God's wisdom and it's holy. But that's called the body of Torah. The revealed part of Torah. And that's what we study mostly. And that's what's important to know. For day to day. How to put on tefillin. How to write tefillin. How to put up a mezuzah. Each letter. How it's written. Every detail. But those are very... Uh, you know, sort of hands-on specifics. Then there's a whole other dimension to Torah, which is the the soul of Torah, the reason behind things, and the, not just the reason, but the spiritual idea behind things. What goes on? What's the true reality behind what the eye can see? What our what our eyes can see? How how God creates the world, the different spiritual worlds, the I, the, the the quality of the souls. What happens to souls? Um, which soul belongs to who? Reincarnations. What happens to the soul? The world to come. All these kind of topics is what the Zohar, the Kabbalah teaches and talks about. More kind of mystical ideas, spiritual ideas. Talks about the sphero, the emanations, the process that God, uh, that, that uh, the, ev- the evolution of creation sort of, the process that God created the world. The greatness of God, the infinity of God, and then angels, all these kind of things. But that's the soul of Torah. That's what gives us a deeper perspective of, of, uh, of, of reality. So we'll bring it out in one difference between the body of Torah, let's say Talmud, and the soul of Torah, the Zohar. One difference we'll see in source number 13. When the Talmud cites or pr- a proof, to resolve a question of law. It often introduces it with the phrase Toshima, which means in Aramaic, come here or come understand. In contrast, the common opening phrase in the Zohar is Tochazi, come see. For the difference between these two forms of Torah is akin 
to the difference between sight on one hand and hearing and comprehension on the other. Okay, so if you open up a book of Talmud, probably every track they will have a couple of times or many times, Ta Shema. Ta means come. Shema, like Shema Yisrael, that's the same in Aramaic as well. Come in here. Come and understand. Come and comprehend. We have a question here. We have a debate. We need a proof. Ta Shema. Come in here. I'm going to tell you this, this, this law. And that's going to prove something to, to this discussion over here. So Ta Shema. Come in here. Listen to what I'm going to say. That's how, that's how the, the Talmud introduces something. The key word is Shema. To hear, to comprehend. You want to understand? Listen and comprehend. But in the Zohar, the introducing paragraph will be Pasach Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon said, Tachazi, come and see. Chazi in Aramaic means to see. In Hebrew, is a chizayon, it's like a vision. Chozim, um, those that look in the stars, those that see the stars. Chazi means to come see. Come see. Uh, I'll prove it to you. What's the difference? Why does it say come see over here in the soul of Torah? And why does it say come in here and comprehend in the body of Torah? Let's take a look at source number 14. What is the difference between sight and see and uh, comprehension? You know that there's a law. Here's a law from the body of Torah from Jewish, from Talmud. Ein eid nasadayon. A witness cannot be a judge. If you witness something with your own eyes, you cannot sit on the, on, the, on the courts. You cannot be a judge. You cannot judge the case. Because if you saw something, and in your mind you saw it, then you can't rule this case. Rule on this case. Because once you see something, it becomes reality for you. And that's not the system of Torah. The Torah system of Torah is there's a judge that didn't witness it. Witnesses come. The judge here is this side. The judge here is this side. These witnesses, those witnesses. And the judge makes a ruling based on the principles of Torah. But the witness, once they think they saw something or they really saw something, it's very hard. And they have the way, when they, once they see something, it becomes reality for him. It's very hard to change and rule differently than that. Let's see inside source 14. Sight is the most convincing of faculties. Once we have seen something with our own eyes, it is virtually impossible for other sensory evidence or rational proofs to refute what we now know. Even if I'll explain it to the judge, once he was the witness, not gonna go in. This is what I saw, this is the way it is. Or it's very hard at least. On the other hand, hearing and comprehension are far less vivid impressors of the information they convey. They will convince us of certain truths, but not as unequivocally as do our eyes. Once we see something, it's reality. Once, if we understand something, okay, today you proved it to me this way, but if somebody else comes and tells me a refute, refutes the proof, then I might change my mind. I might look at things differently. I can see it this way. I can see it that way. So comprehension, hearing, listening is can be a strong proof. But it's not as vivid and strong and as impressionable as sights. That is precisely the difference between the body of Torah, between Talmud and the Nistar, the hidden parts of Torah. Source 15. One who contemplates the body of Torah gains knowledge of, its, of the divine reality. Yes, we study and we get, we're told about things. There are plenty of spiritual ideas in, in the body of Torah as well. 
but this remains hearsay, second-hand information conveyed via the medium of its mundane subject, subject matter. We're learning about tefillin, we're learning about a cow, we're learning about how to slaughter a cow, we're learning about how to, how to eat, how, what blessings to make, and, and, and uh, which parts are kosher, which are not kosher. We're learning about fields, we're learning about damages, we're learning about uh, putting up an arrow, we're learning about building a mikvah, we're learning about water, we're learning about concrete, we're learning about real stuff. And through these real things, we're learning God's wisdom, God's the divine reality. But we're thinking about worldly things. We're dealing with material things. Only by studying the soul of Torah does one come to see godliness, to perceive its reality in the most immediate and unequivocal manner. So one can be very knowledgeable in Torah. You know, there's two kinds of people. You can say this person is very knowledgeable in, in Torah. They, they study Jewish law. They can be a rabbi. They can be very knowledgeable in Torah, in the revealed part of Torah. But the inner dimension, the, the certainty of the truth of Torah, of the truth of God, of that you're hearing about. You, it can be that you hear about it, you're learning about it. But when one studies Kabbalah, one who is immersed in the deeper dimensions of Torah, which talk about God directly, then one comes to Tochazi to come and see. It becomes real. It becomes much more, um, much more of a reality. Let me say it in this story that Hasidim like to say. There was one man, he gets married, and he gets attracted to Hasidus. Hasidic teachings is based on the teachings of Kabbalah. And uh, he goes to his Rebbe, to his teacher, and he comes back. And his father-in-law was not someone who, who studied this. He was very knowledgeable in Torah, a great man. And he tells him, you know, what did you learn over there? What did you learn when you went to your Rebbe and you're, teach, you're studying these deeper teachings of Torah? What, do you, what did you gain? And he says, you know what I gained? I now know that there is a God. The man flips out. Now you know, you're, you married my daughter before that, you didn't know there's a God. He calls in the maid and he says, do you know that there's a God? He says, of course there's a God. So he says, you needed to go there to study, to know that there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God. And he says, you know what? I'll tell you the difference. She says there's a God. I know there's a God. I'm not just saying it because my parents told me. I'm not just saying it because this is the culture I grew up in. And it's, I'm, not just say, I'm not saying it with doubt. I'm saying it with certainty. I know there's a God. I st I'm immersed in the study. I'm studying about this. I'm, and when we study these concepts, it becomes more of a reality, like something that we see with our own eyes. It becomes unequivocal. There's no questions. Okay, you have a question, you have a question there, you can look for an answer. But all the questions fall aside. When we delve into the, the, the Nistar, the hidden part of Torah, it's, it's a whole different reality. And that's played out in the difference of terms. In the Talmud we say Toshima because we're hearing about things, we're comprehending things. But in the in the Zohar it says Tochazi, come and see. Another uh, little story is uh, a Hasid came to uh, a town where they were not Hasidim and they were opposed, they were opponents at that time to learning Hasidus, Hasidic teachings so he wanted to get his way in and uh, be able to give a speech. So he said something, he said like this, you know, the, the Hasidim, all day long, you know what they think about? They think about themselves. 
But those that are what's called the mitnagdim, those that are the opponents to Hasidim, the whole day they're thinking about God. They're thinking about Hashem. Oh, okay, you can be our speaker. And he spoke, and, and later they, they realized he's a Hasid and said, well, what, what did you mean when you said that? And he said, a Hasid, he knows that God exists. That's 100%. No question about it. He's studied... He's studying about God. The whole, the whole thing is talking about God. He's studying directly about God, not just what God wants about kosher, because we can get distracted with the laws of the meat. That, you know, <clears throat> we have to remember, oh, this is God's wisdom. Someone who is immersed in the study of God, the study of the deeper ideas, they, they can't forget about God. So God, they know is true. But they're thinking about themselves. Am I here? Am I true? Why am I here? What's my purpose here? How am I fulfilling my mission that God wants me to be here? So they're not thinking about the... Ide- the, the existence of God, sort of. They're thinking about how they fit into the picture. What am I doing here? Am I here? Why am I here? And how do I fulfill God's will? But those that are not, that this, that they are here themselves, they don't think so much. Because I'm for sure here. I'm here. I, I, of course, I'm important. And they're thinking about God all day. Is God here? Is God really not here? Is He not here? Um... You know, he has a suffix, he has a doubt. How can we prove that God's here? So he's thinking about God. That's the difference. And that's why it's important not just to study the body of Torah, but to study the soul of Torah, which gives us the, that feeling, the feeling for it, the, 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 the truth, the feeling of truth for, for Torah. Let's move on to, source, uh, to our next section here. Source number 16. <clears throat> we have a couple more minutes and we'll wrap this up. One of the ways of celebrating Lag Bomer. Lag Bomer is the day of the passing of Rabbi Shimon and it's a day of celebration. And it's always been celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years since the passing of Rabbi Shimon at his resting place in Meron. It's done with great festivity. But here as well, uh, in Seagate, we'll have a celebration Thursday evening at 6 o'clock. One of the ways of celebrating what children do is they play with bow and arrow. They play with a bow and arrow. Shoot an arrow. Why a bow and arrow? This takes us back 4,500 years to the book of Genesis, the story of Noah and the flood. After the flood, God promises Noah the following. Source number 16. God said, There will never again be a flood to destroy all life. The rainbow will be in the clouds and I will see it and remember the eternal covenant between God and all the living souls on earth. The rainbow, God says, is going to be my sign, my reminder never to bring a flood again. The reminder of this covenant I'm making with you never to destroy the entire world. Now, the Midrash says, Source 17, There will be some generations which will require no sign since they were completely righteous, such as the generation of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So what comes out here is that whenever we see a rainbow, it's a little bit of a negative kind of thing because the rainbow, the way it's understood from the verses, is that when God um, shows a rainbow, it's reminding himself, sort of, of his covenant. Now, when does he have to be reminded? When he wants to bring a flood, when he sees that we're not doing too good. So he brings a rainbow. Oh, no, I have to relax. 
I can't bring another flood. I made a covenant and the rainbow is my sign. But the only reason that you need a rainbow is to remind yourself of this covenant. You only have to be reminded if it will, he will be inspired or, or have the wish to bring a flood. That's why, or maybe that's, maybe that's why, it's one of the reasons why we don't usually look at a rainbow. If you see a rainbow, it's Jewish custom is not to stare at a rainbow. Even though there is a special bracha, there is a special blessing that we say upon seeing a rainbow. And the blessing is that we praise God who is Nemon Bivrisa, that he is um, how do you say he is uh, um, living up to his promise of not bringing another flood trustworthy uh, so we do say a bracha we see a nice rainbow we do say a blessing actually you look it up in the siddur uh, after morning prayers is a list of blessings and that is a blessing but we don't tend to steer at a rainbow so in the that's the sign of a rainbow because it's telling us that God is a little upset. We're not doing too well and there's a need for him to remember not to bring a flood. But, says the Midrash and the other places, it says the more explicit that in certain generations there was no need for a rainbow. There was never a rainbow seen in the entire generation. Why? Because they were good or because there were certain individuals in that generation which their merit protected the entire generation not to bring a flood. And such, what's one such generation was the generation of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that had such great merit, he was such a great, such great uh, stature that he, his merit, his piety protected the entire generation. And there was no need, there was not even a, a reason for God to bring a rainbow and remember not to bring a, not, and remember his covenant not, not to bring a flood. That's one reason why we play with a boat, we can't play with rainbow, so we play with another kind of boat. And actually, in Hebrew, it's not two different words, bow and arrow and rainbow, even though they both have a bow. But in Hebrew, they're both called keshes. Keshes means a rainbow, and keshes means a bow and arrow. So, because of the rainbow, we want to remember the greatness of Rabbi Shimon, who passed away on this day, whose life was culminated <clears throat> on this day. So they play with bow and arrow. <clears throat> but there's another dimension. In the book of the Zohar, by the way, the book of the Zohar was hidden. It was uh, written by the students of Rabbi Shimon, but it was hidden for many, many years. Until about 700 years ago, there was a man, Moshe uh, Dili, from Dileon. Um, and he <coughs> published this, this book. But it was uh, accepted by all leading rabbis as authentic and the, the real writings of Rabbi Shimon, and there are many, many proofs to that. <clears throat> so in the Zohar, it says, Source 18, At present, the rainbow appears in dull colors, since it is only designed as a reminder that there shall be no return of the floods. So the colors are dull. They're not very um, intense, the colors. They're, they're very dull. They're not very bright. Let me say, how much does a rainbow weigh? I don't know, but it's very light. But before Mashiach will come, at the time of the redemption, however, it will appear in the full panoply of colors as a reflection of the everlasting covenant God made with His people. When Mashiach will come, before Mashiach will come, or when Mashiach will come, it will be very, very bright, not just, not dull. The colors will be very, I don't know what the word is, they're very strong. Who can help me out with a good word? Not dull, going to be very deep colors, dark colors. 
So, what does this got to do with Rabbi Shimon? Because Rabbi Shimon began the process. When Mashiach will come, all of us will study these inner dimensions of Torah. The, 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 the real, the reality that is now hidden will be uncovered and our eyes will be able to perceive godliness and see things for their source, uh, at their source and at their true um, existence. Rabbi Shimon started teaching like sort of a taste of what will be when Mashiach will come. So because of Rabbi Shimon started this, so we already we play with a, with a, an arrow, a bow and arrow, which just sounds like a rainbow. Because he began this process of bringing in Mashiach by teaching us some of what Mashiach will teach us. Interesting lesson, source nineteen, that the Rebbe would say about a bow and arrow. The arrow, which you know, it, it's not just random. A bow, a rainbow, arrow. Actually, the mechanism, the way a, a, an arrow is, a bow and arrow is shot connects to the teachings of Rabbi Shimon. Source 19. The arrow must be pulled back towards oneself, towards one heart, in order to strike the heart of the opponent. And the more it is drawn towards oneself, the more distant an adversary it can reach. Got to pull the bow and the arrow back towards your heart, towards yourself, and the more you pull back, the further it's going to reach. <clears throat> That's how the bow and arrow works. What does this represent to us? The mystical dimension of Torah guides us <clears throat> in a retreat to the very core of our soul. It illuminates the selfless heart of the self, the spark of God within us that is one with its Creator. The mystical dimension of Torah, which was the teachings of Rabbi Shimon, who began to disseminate these teachings, is like the bow and arrow. It helps us retreat to our core, and it helps us overcome the adversary that's not just close up front, but even further away. We get in touch with our essence when we study Hasidus, we study Tanya. We study the teachings of Torah, of Kabbalah, or the teachings of Hasidus, which are based on the Kabbalah. It gives us the tools to combat, to conquer the enemies, and live a more productive and meaningful life. It is like the arrow. The more it helps us draw close within ourselves, to retreat to ourselves, and find our inner core, to connect to our neshama, which is connected to Hashem. And that way it gives us a deeper perspective on life. And I think we you know, touched upon these ideas many times throughout uh, the past 130 lessons. So actually the bow and arrow is not just bow, bow, a rainbow, but the way the bow and arrow is used symbolizes, represents the teachings of Rabbi Shimon that we pull in to be able to overcome the distractions, our inner voices, our challenges, with the help of the deeper teachings of Torah. Let's finish off with source number 20, a story, a parable of the Magid of Dubna, the Dubna Magid. He's known as a preacher and he came up with this parable. He would say many, many parables. This is one such parable connected to an arrow, a bow and arrow. 
A man was once walking in the woods when he noticed that many trees had targets drawn on them, each with an arrow planted firmly in its center. Impressed by the marksmanship of whoever had shot these arrows, he was delighted to meet a fellow with a quiver of arrows over his shoulder. How did you manage to shoot so many perfect bullseyes right in the center of every target? It's very simple. The marksman replied with a shrug. First I shoot the arrow, and then I draw the target. So talking about bow and arrows that we play with, or children play with on Lag Bomer, we know our target. We don't paint our targets after we shoot the arrow. We know where we need to head. We need to dedicate time to, stu- to Torah study like we learned in the first section, like Rabbi Shimon. We need to be focused, and we can all improve in that. We should learn from Rabbi Shimon and try to aim to help others like Rabbi Shimon after 13 years in quarantine could have said, huh, I, had so, I suffered so much, I, I need to take care of myself. Yes, we could need to take care of ourselves. We also should look out for others and try to um, even bring comfort to them and take away some discomfort. We know to aim to be uh, more soulful and, and try to focus in on studying some deeper dimensions of Torah and to Thursday night and Friday, we can celebrate Lag Bomer and think about, internalize the message of Lag Bomer. Last week, we spoke about the day of un- unity, uniting together, uh, learning from Rabbi Kiva students to be respectful to each other, not just to love each other, but to have respect and space for one another. And another element of uh, aspect of Lag Bomer is the day celebrating the life and teachings of Rabbi Shimon. It's a day to get together. And, uh, and, and celebrate here on Thursday at 6 p.m. We'll gather in front of the shul in an open space. Uh, maybe you can stand from far. Maybe you'll still be able to watch the show if you're not comfortable actually coming in. We'll have a barbecue for the children, for everybody, and tables and chairs, and an amazing show by Flippin' Out Productions, a trampoline shows. You don't have to go to the, to the stadium to watch them. They're coming right here to Seagate, and uh, we hope to see many of you there and celebrate together Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m. You can reserve on ChabadSeagate.com forward slash BBQ. Thank you for those that are already reserved. And on Sunday, um, two days after Lag Bomer is actually my birthday, my Jewish birthday, we'll have a nice uh, filling club with a uh, lavish breakfast. So the men are welcome to join um to join uh, for tefillin and breakfast. I would be touched if you can attend, even if you don't usually attend, if you can make an effort to, to come and celebrate. Um, your presence will be my presence. Uh, 9.30 a.m. at Shul at Synagogue for Tefillin Club. Next Tuesday, I will be away, so we'll continue in two weeks. We'll resume the Lunch and Learn in two weeks Tuesday for another Torah lesson. Thank you for joining. If anybody has any questions, now is the time. I'm going to just scroll up to see if anybody has any questions about today's lesson. Lag Baomer. Thank you for all for joining. Um, we love Rabbi Shimon. Yes, we all love Rabbi Shimon. Um, if you don't like uh, to be too squashed, probably a Lag Baomer is not the best day for you to visit the grave. There are hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of people 
visit his grave uh, during the day, the day or the day before, the day after of his passing. Ain't um, Sof, yes, Ain't Sof is a very common description of God. Or Ain't Sof, the infinite light, the light without end. Um, that is a, a, a term used in the Zohar many times. Great. So we're looking forward. And once again, next week we'll be uh, off. But in two weeks, Tuesday, we'll be back for another session, God willing. Zai be well and happy Lag Baomer.